0: All right, so you can turn to John chapter 21. Oh, welcome to church this morning, by the way. Uh, Welcome back. Welcome back. Doing some things that we haven't done in a little while, um, like sit this close to each other. Um, Other things that we're going to do that we haven't done in a while, at least in the capacity that we're going to do them, is is potluck next week. Is potluck? Uh, Bring a meal? Share? Stick around afterwards? Uh, Coming up is men's breakfast, which fortunately is not a potluck. Thank you, Marcy, uh, for feeding all of us. Um, Jim's going to have the sign-ups for you there to sign up um, for breakfast on the 6th. And uh, that's all I want to talk about for now, except the Gospel of John, which we are finishing. Have we pushed the button? Is this recording? Cool. Um, We are finishing a really good... Book, um, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna start in verse. Oh, let's see. How about twenty? Does that sound right? No, fifteen. That's the right. That's the wrong one. Uh, we'll just start in chapter one. Now, um, yeah, we're in the middle of breakfast. We're coming in the middle of uh, of breakfast. Verse fifteen of John chapter twenty one it says, "So when they had eaten breakfast." Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You, follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that is, this disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testified of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they weren't written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Uh, Jesus, we ask once more that you would give us understanding of of you and nothing less. We're not asking for anything less. We're not asking for enlightenment for the purposes of uh, scratching an intellectual itch or, or providing an academic instruction or something like that. We want fellowship with God, um, and we we see that you're eager to give it, and we see the way that you pursue um, those who uh, who are yours. And we pray that would be us today. Not that we would just find ourselves in the text, but that you would find us as we look at it. Jesus, come be with us. Send us your spirit to lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 The book of John began in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. That's where we came into this story. That's a long time ago. The Word was with God and the Word was God. We've come a long way, haven't we? Amen. Uh, we are at the end of John's Gospel. And really, we're, we're even a little bit past the end. Uh, if you want to consider this chapter as the epilogue. This is the, this is the PS at the end, okay? This is um, an epilogue happens after the end, after the last chapter. But there's still a little bit more to be said. Chapter 21 Uh, has the feel of an extra chapter, uh, an extra word, which is exactly what epilogue means. Uh, I I, I don't say that to indicate that it's not authentic or that it's not really part of the gospel or something like that. You know, dessert is extra, but we're happy when it shows up. Um, So chapter 20 ends the official gospel part of the story in that it has all the ingredients of the gospels. Uh, chapters 1 through 20 tell a story. And chapter 20 ends with all the boxes checked. Okay, Jesus, who is God and man. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The disciples have witnessed the resurrection. They have received the Holy Spirit. They have been sent out into the world. That's, that's the gospel. Uh, chapter 21 is given to us as an extra word about the grace of of the gospel and what it looks like when it is given to a sinner. And in our story, that sinner is Peter. Last week, I pointed out that chapter 21 is really all about Peter. It's about Jesus too. It always is. But this is about Jesus and Peter. Peter's restoration. Not only as, um, not only being restored as a friend of Jesus, but also as a, uh, a lead apostle in the, in the midst of his friends the other apostles this chapter is uh, specifically about both the public and private restoration of Peter um, you can see if you compare the gospels that Peter and Jesus have already met before this right? we know that um, they've spoken on Easter and they've seen each other and Peter knows he's not you know, unforgiven somehow uh, but that's not the same thing as being restored to your place at the table, so to speak. When Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, when the son returns to his father's house and he knows, at least my father will take me back as a slave, and it's worth it. I'm happy with that. That's way better than the pigsty that I've lived in. That's enough. And I think Peter knows that he's forgiven. He knows that he's not living with the pigs anymore. Jesus has come. You know, the, the angel has sent the women, tell Peter that I'm alive and I'm going to see him in Galilee. All that, there's been a level of restoration there, but that's not the same as the, the father running to meet the son, girding up his, his skirts, right? And running out to meet him and then giving the, the robe and the ring and the feast. It's possible that Peter knows he's been accepted back on the ground floor, so to speak, at the bottom rung. But Jesus wants to assure Peter that he is more than forgiven. He's, back. he's coming back to work. He's, he's back in his role as apostle and he's given the robe, the ring, the feast. So at this point in the story, Jesus has given the fishermen a sort of replay of their first call. And if you want the replay, listen to last week's sermon. It's online. Um, and in Luke chapter 5, uh, Jesus had the disciples catch more fish than their nets or boats could hold. And Peter, in that moment, when he and Jesus were just getting to know each other, he saw a glimpse of the divinity of Christ and he, he falls down at the feet of Jesus. In Luke 5, chapter 8, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And we saw that this humility is consistent with how sinful men throughout history encounter this holy God. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and says, woe is me for I am undone. Elijah hears the still small voice. He, he covers his face to encounter Christ. Moses covers his face at the burning bush. And last week we saw Peter put on his jacket to go swim <laughs> so that when he gets to Jesus he has some sort of of covering, Peter goes to Christ in humility. Jesus then told Peter, grab some of those fish, contribute to breakfast. Potlucks are biblical. And, and Peter, by himself, takes up the whole net of fish that seven fishermen were unable to carry just moments before. And John, a fellow fisherman, saw it and saw that it was worth noting that the net did not break, meaning it probably should have. And we ended last week by noting this dual miracle. Jesus preserves the net, and Jesus preserves Peter. Now we come to the other side of breakfast. They've had fish and bread. Christ, the Son of God, has served his disciples, even as the death-defeating risen king that he is, confirming his mission as a mission of service. And now when they have eaten, the good conversation starts, which is generally the way it goes in verse 15, it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, there's been plenty of discussion as to what exactly uh, is being asked here. Just like we mentioned last week, there are plenty of people who think that Peter going fishing was an action of faithlessness somehow, that he was going back on his call, rejecting the ministry Christ had put him in and was somehow trading the sacred Uh, for the secular. I disagree with that interpretation, but if you do hold that view, then this question in verse 15 could be seen as referring to the fish. What are the these? Do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than your boats and your old life? Do you love me more than the worldly success that I am more than capable of giving you, obviously? Do you love me more than fish? This is a question many need to be asked. Do you love Jesus more than your job or the signs of success, the wealth, or even happiness? Do you think is around the next corner? That's a question your heart may need to turn over, but I don't think that's what Jesus is asking Peter. Now, remember, this conversation is not happening in private. John is listening in, taking notes. Yeah. There are they're at breakfast. There's seven disciples plus Jesus. There, um, John he overheard this conversation firsthand. Jesus is asking Peter, in the hearing of all these other guys, "Do you love me more than these?" other disciples love me awkward really awkward um who loves jesus the most in this room we need to talk to you (laughs) because you can come up and teach if you want um yeah that's strange right That's, that's strange but why would jesus ask that question so blatantly so publicly because one of the last things that peter said to jesus in the company of these men by the way before his arrest Was this Matthew 26 verse 33? Even if all these are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Right in front of the the other 10 guys in the room at that time. That's something Peter said with his friends around him. All of them will stumble. Jesus said, All of you will stumble. And Peter said, Yeah, all of them, (laughs) all of those guys. I mean, Peter, we've seen before, has this kind of attitude that is very prevalent in the church. We need to repent and con- confess this and repent it. Um, so let's get this on the table. Peter has the attitude that Christianity would be a lot easier if it was just him and Jesus and not all these other guys. <laughs> let's stay on the mountain. We'll build tents. It'll be fun. You know, all these can do, can fail. That's okay. I expected it of them, but I will never. I love you more than anyone else, Jesus. And now Jesus is asking, Would you say the same thing today, Peter, having been what you've been through, us having been what we've been through? Do you still love me the most? Is your love for me still the best? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't say I love you more. He says, I love you. Now, just like there's much discussion as to what is meant by these, when Jesus says, do you love me more than these? So there has been so much discussion as to what is meant by love here. There are different words for love used throughout this passage, and I'll point each one out to you as we go along. And there are plenty of wise, very wise, skilled scholars that do not believe there is any real significance uh, or significant difference in the meanings of these words in this context. Um, And you can see that that's evidence as in the fact that no major Bible translation takes these words and does anything different with them except translate them as love. When you're reading this in English, it says love, and that does give the the main meaning. It's not like there's the secret meaning that you just have to go to school for. That's the wrong way to read the Bible. Okay, it, it... there, there is a clear meaning in this passage where love means love. So it's possible that, that to tease out the extra meanings or exaggerating something that wasn't there in the original conversation. So I don't want to overdo it here. That being said, there are many who do see important subtleties in this conversation based on which word for love is used. When Jesus says, do you love me more than these, he uses the word um, taken from the root word agape. Peter responds, you know I love you, and he uses a different word, um, phileo the second time the same thing Jesus uses agape Peter responds phileo the third time Jesus says phileo and Peter responds phileo there may be some texture here that we're just not getting in English but I do want to be really careful here because there's really a whole lot of overlap in these words they both do actually mean love and they are translated well in this way if there is a deeper meaning that we can get from the Greek here I believe it is simply this Peter is still coming to Jesus in the utmost humility. And his love for Jesus, just like our love for Jesus, is still not all that it could be. And he is aware of this. He is aware, like like the man with the the, uh, demon-possessed son who comes to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Peter, in in using maybe what some might see as a weaker form of the word love, may be saying essentially the same thing. Jesus, I love you but I don't love you like the way I should. And that is a prayer that echoes in your heart and finds its home there. Yes, I love you, but you know how I love you. Peter's not lying. He loves Jesus. He does love Jesus. Does he love him perfectly? Does anyone? (laughs) Peter is coming to Jesus in ultimate humility and his love like Jesus, just like ours, is incomplete. If Jesus is reminding Peter of their last conversation in the upper room where Peter was so confident that his love for Jesus was greater than anyone else's, he is now clearly not so sure any longer. (laughs) Jesus says, do you love agape me more than these? And Peter responds, I do love you. I love you as, as best I can. Now, again, I would be hesitant to read too much into the difference in the Greek words. I really do believe that the important part of the story comes across just fine in English. In this case, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs. This is a call to ministry. Peter was chosen not just to be Christ's friend, but to be sent on a mission. He was called not to be a disciple, but to be a fisher of men, to be an apostle. When Jesus is telling Peter in Luke 22 about his impending fall, they're in the upper room there. Jesus says, everyone's going to to suffer. Everyone's going to scatter. Everyone is going to deny me. Peter says, not me. And then Jesus fills him in on the details about how bad his sin is really going to be. How he will deny the Lord. And Peter, or sorry, Jesus tells Peter this in Luke 22. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, Strengthen your brethren. Peter had a ministry to the rest of the disciples the whole time. He was always in that position of ministering to the other disciples. Peter's closeness with Jesus was always to be known and expressed in his ministry to others. In this passage, we're seeing both Peter's personal restoration as one who has sinned and is brought near, And what you could almost call his professional restoration, his restoration to public ministry. And we also see, as we always do in Peter, a blurry, unflattering mirror. Right? But you see Christ reach out to Peter like he reaches out to you. And we see in Peter a ministry that is similar to yours, a call to closeness with Jesus that will be expressed in your love and care for others. Now, Jesus had told Peter, when you return to me, you're going to have a job to do. You've got work to do. And it's these guys. It's the church. It's your brethren. It's the other leaders of the church that I'm founding on the rock. Peter, minister to those people. Comfort them. Lead them. So now Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says he does. And we should believe him. He loves Jesus. So Jesus says, feed my lambs. Jesus says this three different ways. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. Again, I wouldn't get bogged down in the different words for lambs and sheep. And it's like, okay, so first he's going to be in children's ministry because lambs are baby (laughs) sheep. You know, don't read too much into it, okay? There's a really clear, sweet, strong point that can get muddied if you try and do that kind of Bible study with this passage. Um, He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. I don't believe Peter was called to three different ministries. These are all ways of describing what a shepherd does. There's not one shepherd who feeds the lambs and another who feeds the sheep and then another who tends the flock. It's all the work of the shepherd. And Jesus is telling Peter, I want you to be the shepherd of my flock, Peter. And notice that he doesn't say your flock. Peter never had a flock. The sheep are always Christ's. When Peter writes to the church in 1 Peter 5.2, he says to the leaders of those churches, shepherd the flock of God. In the New Testament, the role of elder, bishop, overseer, shepherd, sometimes translated pastor, same word, appear to be synonymous. They're the same thing. Peter is being called to pastoral ministry, leadership role in the church. And the qualification that Christ presents him with is this. Do you love me? And the answer is Yes. If the answer is yes, then feed my sheep. This does not mean that everyone who loves Jesus will be a pastor, but it had better mean two things, that every pastor does so, that every pastor shepherds the flock because he loves Jesus, and then also that you see that your love for Christ is both the qualification for ministry and the impetus for ministry. In other words, you must love Jesus if you are going to serve in his church. You must love Jesus if you are going to serve the world effectively. But also, if you love Jesus, then you absolutely must serve his family. You absolutely must show that love for Christ in serving his people. Every person who loves Jesus will be called to minister to other believers. This is a non-negotiable. Jesus tells the disciples, not just Peter, they'll know you by your love for one another. And love for the Lord leads you To love his people. You know, this little conversation between Jesus and Peter happens three times. We'll read the last two uh, together here. It says in verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Jesus asks these questions and gives these orders for a reason. Remember, uh, something that we've seen many times in the Gospels, God doesn't ask questions to get information. He already knows the answer. Amen. He doesn't ask in order to, because he forgot, or to inform him of something that he's really curious about. God asks questions, and he's been doing this since the garden. Where are you, Adam? He asks questions in order to give information, usually about the person who he's asking the question of. Where are you, Adam? Isn't that a deeper, well, I'm in the bushes. Why am I in the bushes? Why am I hiding in the bushes? This leads to further self-knowledge, right? Okay. And his questions, only God can do this perfectly. He asks questions in order to reveal things about himself, to teach you about himself. Questions from God are opportunities for us to examine our hearts, our souls, and see what it is that God is doing there. Do you love me more than these? That's a question that's all about Peter. Peter. And you examine yourself and see what obstacles might be there keeping you from enjoying the work of God. Jesus doesn't doubt Peter's love for him. He knows it's not a perfect love. He knows what quality it is. But he knows it's a desperate love. So he asks this question to show Peter his heart, Peter's heart, Jesus' heart. This question is asked three times. Three times... They have this exchange, and it irritates Peter a little bit. There's a reason for three. Peter denied Christ three times, and those denials are answered now with the confession of love. Aren't you one of his disciples? No. Are you one of his disciples? No. Are you one of his disciples? I don't even know him. And then he catches Christ's eye and goes out and weeps bitterly. And now Jesus is there again, maybe maybe holding the same kind of eye contact. And saying, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? You know, Lord. You know, only you know the condition of my heart. Now, if Jesus is doing this for Peter's benefit, and not just his own, which I believe he is, why does he do it this way? Because confession affects the confessor. Right? The church, historically, has recited what it believes in forms of creeds. Not to remind God that we believe in him. Or not to remind God what we believe in Him. Obviously, we recite creeds and, or sing them and because we, we believe that these truths have an effect on our spirits. There's a, a simple, short, confessional creed that's not even a creed, but certainly has the intended result on the heart of the one who says it. When you say this, it affects you just as much, or well, well, more than God. You're not affecting God by this. When you say, I love you, Lord, that is, that is a spiritual move that is happening on your own heart. I love you, Lord. Realize this. You cannot say those words truthfully without a miraculous work of the Spirit of God in your life. Amen. They will be a lie. You can't say that without God moving on your heart. Romans chapter 5 talks about the love of God being poured out into your hearts by the Spirit of God. Which is why when you tell Jesus that you love Him, you will realize His mercy and His kindness. The mercy and kindness that He has shown to you when you are not just least deserving, you are ill-deserving, undeserving. Include these words in your prayers, please. Include these words of Peter in your prayers. Include this confession along with your devotions. I love you, Lord. Peter follows after David who prayed these words and set them to music in the Psalms, which were then recited and sung by every generation of Jew and Christian since they were written 3,000 years ago. Tell Jesus you love him. We're built around this confession. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. Well, then start doing it. <laughs> Tell Jesus you love him when you do. Don't be surprised when he shows you others to love. Remember the theme we've seen with the resurrected Jesus, how he encounters people and then immediately, almost too soon it seems for our comfort level, almost immediately sends them away from him on a, on a job, on a mission. Mary's still holding on to him and he says, don't hold on to me. Get up and go tell my friends where I am. That happens all the time with people who encounter the resurrected Lord. He's doing it again. Peter, if you love me, then love them. We're not going to have breakfast for all eternity, as nice as that sounds. (laughs) We're going to be together for a little while longer. Then you've got to go love them. Now, you may not be called to pastoral ministry like Peter. The odds are against it. But you are called to this love one another. And they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Press into the love of Jesus by confessing your love for him and then accept his guidance as you look to tend his flock. When studying this passage, I found it very interesting how much was written on the technical details of the passage itself. There's some passages of scripture that I'm curious about. And you've got to really look for a scholar that spent some time in those passages. Like they're hard to find commentary or papers on certain passages. This is not one of those passages. Everyone has written on this passage. Strongly opinionated, long peer-reviewed papers. Okay, all, all that stuff. And they, they get into the Greek words and the grammar as well as the things that that cannot be understood from a grammatical view alone, like, well, what is the these in verse 15? We, we don't know. So let's assume and write pages about it. Um, you know, there's pages of commentaries written from nothing more than well-meaning, well-meaning speculation, more than on other passages I found. This is interesting and striking because the real meat of the passage is so kindergarten. It's, it's so, it's entry-level, bottom-shelf stuff. The real meat of the passage is very simple. Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me? He says, Yes. And then Jesus says, Then feed my sheep. That is what the passage means. And I wondered if all the academic interest in this passage is not in some small part a coping mechanism, a way to avoid the obvious meaning and application of the passage. Do you think that Jesus would still ask this question today? I do. Do you think that Jesus would ask you in the stillness of your heart, do you love me? I believe he would. Do you see in your own heart, imagining that conversation, do you see in your own heart a tendency to look for a conversation around this question rather than in the question? You know, parsing the words, splitting the hairs, asking, "Well, what does love really mean <laughs> anyway? Instead of settling into the reality of this question that God himself would ask a sinner, do you love me? And you're responsible for your answer. I would, I can imagine wanting to write several papers on this rather than encounter my own heart and the lack of the love of Christ that I see there. Can you put yourself in that place where you could imagine Jesus ask you in front of everyone else, by the way, well, do you love me? Do you love me more than she does? Do you love me more than he does? Now, don't say it out loud, but consider in your soul, what's your answer? I'll be honest, when I did this little spiritual exercise with myself in my office, my answer was far too long, because I want to justify. I want to say, well, yes, I love you as best I can, but not as I should. And I've studied the Greek, and there's three words. Come on. (sighs) Try not to get on that rabbit trail. Jesus asks you, do you love me? Give your answer. Then he tells you what you need to do. He tells you how you need to serve. Then stay with me. Just what if? Imagine Jesus asks you again, a little bit louder. Do you love me? Give your answer. And he repeats the same call to you. Then, oh yes, one more time, he asks you again in front of all your friends, do you love me? And you're thinking, did I get the answer wrong? (laughs) Do you love me? Then take care of my church. Then feed my sheep. Can you see why Peter may be flustered by this third time? I think I would be. And do you see maybe why Bible students get to this passage and start writing furiously? perhaps even subconsciously to avoid the confrontation that is obviously here. But the confrontation that must be had. Jesus will ask you, do you love me? And Peter gives his answer every time, yes. But the third time he adds, you know. And you have to be content with that. Jesus, you know my heart. There's the line in that song, you know the depths of my heart and you love me the same. Peter says, you know the depths of my heart, Jesus. Now this is important. In the upper room, when Jesus said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me, Peter said, no. He said, I know better and I'm going to do it my way and you'll see, it's going to work out fine. When Jesus told the disciples he would die for one of the the first times, Peter took Jesus aside and said, no, Lord. Essentially saying, I know better. Now, as Jesus asks him, well, Peter, now that you know yourself a little bit better, do you love me more than these? And Peter eventually comes to the conclusion, Lord, you know. It's not about what I know. You you know. This is what Jesus knows. He knows that Peter loves him. And he knows that he, Jesus, will preserve Peter to the end. In the next verse, he tells Peter in so many words, I know, I know, Peter. And in a very Christian, very paradoxical, upside down way, you're going to make it, Peter. Verse 18 and 19, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. John includes this explanation. I'm so grateful that he did. Jesus is talking about the martyrdom of Peter. Jesus says, when you were young, Peter, there was a whole lot of willfulness and you had the means to do what you wanted. There was a whole lot of self back in the day when you were young. You went where you wanted to. You dressed how you wanted to. It's not going to be like that when you're old. Now, to many people, this sounds like quite a curse, kind of a downer, right? It says, oh, you can do what you want now, but later you're not going to be able to do what you want. There's a part of your heart, I'm sure, there's a part of mine that says, that doesn't sound like a real cheerful promise. We value independence so highly. We need to be able to do our own stuff and definitely, you know, uh, dress ourselves the way we want. That's just the highest form of independence, right? And, and Jesus says, Peter, when you were younger, you girt yourself and you went where you wanted and you, you did what you want. When you're old, that's not going to be the way it works anymore. We, we value our independence and we, we feel like we need to be able to do things our way until we realize that we're not good at choosing what is best for us. We're not good at it. Peter has been saying through the entire gospel, I know best. This is the moment where he says, Jesus, you know you know best. This is where Peter says, yes, Jesus, life is like a game of chess, and I don't know how to play chess. <laughs> you know? He's he's saying, I don't... I, You know. That's the best I can offer. You know. The first autobiography ever written, St. Augustine's Confessions, and the whole thing is written to God, and it's exactly as the title expresses. It's a confession. It's like 400 pages of confessing. And uh, there's this time in... Uh, Augustine's life, where he was able to follow his flesh and feed his appetites. He could afford it and he could do what he wanted, and he realized that his lusts were lying to him. And he writes this down. He says, If only someone could have imposed restraint on my disorder. In hindsight, he says, I wish I had just like someone to beat this out of me. Peter had tried it Peter's way by now. You might read these words of Jesus and think they are discouraging. They are not. Even when you know that the lack of independence is going to lead to Peter's death, you must see that Christ offers the fallen Peter the best words of encouragement that he could possibly hear. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you're going to grow up and you aren't going to do things the Peter way anymore. You're going to do things the Jesus way with arms stretched out. That's the way you're going to do things when you're older. Peter would long for this promise. Paul would long for this promise. Romans chapter 7, he cries out, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I know I should do, and I really want to do it. And he pleads with heaven, who will deliver me from this body of death? And when Jesus tells Peter, your selfish will, Peter, is going to die. He's telling him, Peter, in the end, you make it. You stay faithful, Peter. You cross the finish line. When Peter was grappling with the horrifying reality that his Lord and best friend was being taken from him, he had said, I would even die for you. And he thought he meant it. Well, now Jesus is saying, Peter, that deep love in your heart that is very well-meaning but completely uh, impotent, <laughs> you're, you're completely powerless to follow through on that love without me, we'll now, you'll now be allowed to develop that love and grow in it and find its end in this beautiful sacrifice. You're going to make it. This is Peter's sacrifice. We know this from history, not scripture, but I don't see any reason to contest it. About 30 years after the events on the shore of Galilee that we're reading about now, it was uh, in 64 AD, Peter was in Rome. And uh, the major persecution under Caesar Nero was getting into full swing. And Peter was a natural target as a leader of the church. The story goes that Peter... Uh, being encouraged by the other elders of the churches was saying you got to get out of here They're looking for you. They know where you're staying. You have to leave Rome and he's thinking well gotta, you know Be a good steward of my time. I'm, uh, you know, I'm really an asset to the church I need to stay alive and he's leaving the city in order to avoid capture and uh, and death and um, As the story goes that Peter refused Uh, to leave. He started to leave and this is more myth than history but the story the church told was that he encountered Jesus heading into Rome and he said where are you going? He's like I know this is a vision but Jesus where are you going? And Jesus said I I have to go get crucified again in Rome and Peter knew in that instant. he's like no that's me I have to follow you that's the one thing you told me to do is follow you I have to go to Rome and he turned around and he walked back in and was captured and crucified his only request was that he was crucified upside down claiming that he was unworthy to be killed in the same way as his Lord. He made it. He died the good death. To follow Jesus means to take up your cross and follow him. And John 21 verse 19 when Jesus says, you follow me, He was asking Peter to follow him all the way to death. He had called Peter to this life before. He had said, if anyone would come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. Peter had said, I'll do it, absolutely. I'm not looking back. My hand is on the plow. I would die for you, but he couldn't. His own will remained too strong, but Jesus offers this promise. In the end, Peter, your will, the young Peter, the part that does what Peter wants instead of what God wants, that part of you will be defeated. I will finish the good work I've begun in you. So he says, follow me. And then what happens next reminds us that we're still dealing with real people Real people, because Peter turns around and says, well, what about that guy? How about him? Uh, verse 20 says, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. I think he turned around and be like, you were listening to a private conversation, John. Um, that's not in the text. Uh, he also had leaned... He, oh, who also had leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, the temptation to draw the comparison between your walk with Christ and the person next to you will always be there. But Jesus says, what is that to you? That's none of your business. You follow me. Peter talks, talks about judging another man's servant. It's kind of the same thing. Don't let your analysis of another person's faith prevent you from simply following Jesus. These words of Jesus were caused for some confusion by the time John wrote this book. People thought that Jesus said, John will never die, and they thought that was pretty cool. So John, the author of this book, explains what really happened in verse 23. So Then this saying went out, among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Uh, So the rumor had gotten out of hand that John wrote this, by the time John wrote this gospel, he was probably the last living apostle. He is the only one of the 12 that lived a good long life, well into his 90s at least. The only one that died of natural causes, even though they had tried to kill him, just wouldn't die. Uh, But John is, is correcting the thought that he was somehow immortal he wants people to be clear that Jesus was basically just telling Peter, mind your own business. My plan for you doesn't mean I have the same plan for that guy. My plan for you is that you follow me. Now the message of this section of scripture is so simple. It's Jesus coming to his friend who had failed. It's Jesus asking him, do you love me? and then sending him to love others. It's Jesus saying to his restored friend, follow me. John ends his gospel here because he wants his readers to see that they too could be called of the Lord in the same way. Look at the last two verses. He says, this is the disciple who testified of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. John admits that he's the author of the book. And then he says, this is just a tiny taste. It's like Job says in in Job 19, he says, you know, these are the mere edges of his ways, but the thundering of his power, who could understand? John essentially admits, this is just the beginning which is how all of the gospel writers end their their gospels. Matthew saying, I'm with you even to the end of the age, forever and ever, amen. See, the book of John began in eternity past with a declaration of the divinity of the re, of, the, of the incarnate Christ. It literally begins in the beginning. You can't get further back than that. But it doesn't end with the end. It ends with another beginning, saying that Jesus did so much more than what is in this book. And of course, you'll notice... That it ends with a living Jesus who is still having conversations, who's still doing things, who's still moving. The ascension isn't even mentioned in John's gospel. So there's this note of unfinished business. And there's what seems to be a little bit of hyperbole, saying that the whole world cannot contain the books that would contain the works of Christ. But is that an exaggeration at all? If you collected all the works of Jesus from day to day, from eternity past until now and even into the future, how many books would there be? And if you had, if you were able, or if you had a library card, let's say you had a library card for that library, wouldn't you be able to find a book with your story in it, with God's graciousness to you written? where you would be able to read what Christ has done for you. And in that that chapter where Christ meets you in that book, in this imaginary library, there would be a similar chapter to the one we just read where Jesus restores you with a question by drawing out your confession by asking, do you love me? And there would be a place in that book where you were called to your ministry. There would be a chapter in that book where Jesus tells you, follow me and mind your business. He has asked you these questions. He has given you his commands. We turn to him now in obedience and hope, loving the one who has saved us. Pray with me, please. Jesus, your grace is more than enough. Your goodness to us is seen here in in such clarity, with such um, such power. Jesus, we confess to you now. We love you. We love you, Jesus. We love you. We love you. We pray with Isaiah. Here I am. Send me. We look to you with hope that only comes from you, with love in our hearts that uh, has its source in you, with confidence and faith and even that a gift from you. We look to you, Jesus. We thank you that you are not only the author but the finisher of this faith. Amen. Amen. Please stand.